the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right, good afternoon to you and welcome. It is, of course, Tuesday, the 19th day of May, and great to have you on board for yet another edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company right up until... 7 o'clock tonight, as we do a typically Monday through Friday, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. And boy, we've got a lot of those going on these days, don't we? Probably a little bit more than what we'd um, really have given our druthers, but we weren't given our druthers, so here we all are. Got some late-breaking news for you. Brad Dake, as constitutional lawyer, will join us coming up later on in this first hour to give us the latest as an Oregon judge has ruled that Oregon Governor Kate Brown's pandemic-related executive orders have exceeded her authority. Probably no big surprise there. We'll talk about the fallout, the response by the governor, when Brad Dacus joins us from the Pacific Justice Institute a little bit later on in tonight's program. This, of course, raises an abundance of questions, not just with regard to how we open back up, but whether or not the closure to the degree to which it's happened across the country, was really in our best interest. Now, we're trying to weigh political equations with health concerns and worries over the economy. And sometimes these issues mesh together nicely, and other times, perhaps as we're certainly witnessing now, they really don't. You're familiar with the sign. You'll see it in restaurants and stores Everywhere, no shirt, no shoes, no service. Well, as states begin to open back up, including our own, we might get accustomed to seeing a slightly different sign. This one reading, no mask, no distancing, no service. Let's spend some time to talk about what has transpired here, and, and, and in particular, some interesting contrast between the current economic crisis that has come on the heels of COVID-19 against one of 11 years ago, when bailouts were all the fashion and we were told, too big to fail. That sadly, though, in that sense of too big, or maybe in this case the opposite, true, too little to worry about. As we see the ongoing fallout from COVID-19 and those left in its economic wake. We're joined by lawyer, author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, broadcast every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. The Answer. And Bob, as always, thank you for taking time to be with us. Always a pleasure, Craig. Thank you so much for inviting me to join you. We are, of course, um, struggling here to try and figure out at what pace do we reopen different states, different approaches. At some levels, I think there's been a sense of encouragement that this has sort of led to a revival of federalism. 
Um, and yet, as we're also beginning to learn, there are some degrees in which that federalism or the, the states and, and local municipalities have gone a bit of a, um, well, I suppose small businesses and people that have really been impacted by all this would argue they've gone a bridge too far. Uh, most notably, we've seen the service and manufacturing sector workers um, who clearly can't service or manufacture at home. They have been the most impacted by shelter in place. And oddly, a $1,200 check, Bob, I don't think is going to make that much of a difference. It's not, uh, especially uh, when, when all of us acknowledge that when people work, work to most people in America, probably most people in the world, uh, work is far more than just a, an activity to gain a paycheck. But most of us identify one way or another with how we earn a living, what we do for work. Now, it certainly provides or ought to provide, if done right, satisfaction. It gives it adds meaning to life rather than just getting a check because you have a pulse. And to most people, it's a source of satisfaction, of self-reliance, of the fact we can take care of ourselves. Work provides a huge emotional component besides the social and the physical aspects of it. And to deny people work, to make Going to work a crime, which is what America has done to a large portion of the economy, economy, to criminalize such an essential activity without any thought being given to the long-term implications, psychological, physical, as well as economic, was a profound mistake. It was a mistake that, without getting too excited too early in the game... It was a mistake that maybe will have consequences similar to when Parliament in 1765 imposed a stamp tax, a small tax of colonies 3,000 miles away. And that stamp tax, to raise money to pay for the French and Indian War, seemed like a good idea at the time, and let the colonists pay, said parliament 3,000 miles away across an ocean, that put steps into motion that changed Earth, certainly changed the colonies. It gave us a country. And, uh, Craig, it's early in the game, but it is easy to see, and we may explore it on this show, all of the profound political realignments that might, I don't say will, but that might flow from this little dangerous, potent, lethal bug that is now infecting the globe. I, I take a step back and I allow my intellect and my imagination to just project what's happening today into the future, and we may have time to explore that. And the prospects for me one who favors self-reliance and free markets and free minds uh, and control over our lives, I, have, I am more optimistic today than I have been maybe, maybe in my entire life about the future for this country. Could be wrong, but there's more reason to hope now than ever since I've been an adult. 
And do you feel that is so, Bob, because this has pushed to the forefront a lot of critical issues for Americans that perhaps for too long we just simply ignored, such as the, the degree to which there has been growing centralization of power in Washington, D.C. I mean, for the large part, we see the collapse of the Soviet Union because we know the centralized approach to government doesn't work. And yet, in the wake of that, we've been sort of collectively gathering more and more momentum and power centralized in the Beltway, much to the consternation of, of folks in middle, middle America who say, how can you lay down a mandate that makes sense for New York City when I'm living in Peoria? It's exactly, Craig, you hit the nail on the head. And we will probably be discussing today, if not today, that another time, the astonishing polarization that something like a virus, where one would imagine protecting ourselves and our country from the adverse effect of the virus, that ought to be something for which nobody can disagree. But it has caused polarization to a to an unpredictable, almost uncontrollable extent, so that face masks become a political statement. Oh my goodness! And and people are complaining about their governor not understanding their small town, rural town, because the governor is focusing on big cities. Everybody is complaining. People in the states are complaining about Washington. People in in San Francisco or in San Diego are complaining about the governor of Sacramento. He doesn't understand San Diego. People in upstate New York are complaining that their governor only understands New York City, but not New York State. All of a sudden, the country, if you want to know what they all are complaining about, they're complaining that government is too distant and doesn't understand their particular needs. The very same complaint the founders had the very same complaint. They would not be governed by Parliament 3,000 miles away. Well, 3,000 miles away becomes 30 miles now in some instances. It's the very same issue. America has reached, whether they know it or not, a boiling point where enough is enough with remote government, with one size fits all. And right now, there's a the Congress, Nancy Pelosi, has a $3 trillion, with a T, dollar bill, $3 trillion bill, uh, more money. A third of that, $1 trillion, is earmarked to the states. Why the states? Because California and New York and other Democratic bastions, Illinois, have squandered their money for decades. And this is a chance to cover it all up with a trillion dollars spread amongst the states. And you have Florida saying, what are you talking about? We in Florida are not going to bail out New York. It's almost a talk like secession. No, we're not going to pay for New York. And Wyoming says we're not going to pay for New York. New York spent the money. Let them get it back. People are complaining about a way of doing business that has been the way this country has done business for 150 years, and all of a sudden, it's gotten too much. Craig, it is, it is a political scientist fantasy to take a step back and analyze what's going on from a political standpoint. I don't mean at the ballot box. I mean people have had enough of 
federalism of remote government with no understanding. People are complaining about the CDC. One size fits all. That's reverse federalism. That's power in Washington, as you have said. The country almost universally says we've had enough. I have goosebumps, Craig, even talking about it. The irony, of course, is that we have for the longest time sort of relied and on an ever-increasing basis on experts handling all of this. We have expert politicians who get into office, make their way up to the chairs, maybe start at the local school board, city council, um, supervisor on the local county, um, board of supervisors, then to state office, then federal office, and then they sit for 30, 40 50 years or longer. So we've sort of become complacent in saying, let's send the experts to Sacramento, to Washington, D.C. They'll decide for us. They'll do what's best, and we'll just go about our day-to-day lives and completely disconnect ourselves from this concept, as Lincoln intoned in the Gettysburg Address, of government of, by, and for the people. And sadly, the people have been largely missing from all of this. And so this is, I think, the result when you send experts to go handle the people's business. You take the power out of the hands of the people and concentrate it in the hands of just very few. Bob Zadek with us today, lawyer, author, syndicated talk show host. His program, The Bob Zadek Show, Heard Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 a.m. The Answer. Be sure to tune in. Check him out on the web at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as we unfold the decision by the judge in Oregon and what this means to a broader scale in terms of localization versus nationalization of not just our health care decisions, but also our economic decisions. That is Lifeline Continues. Get your look, though, right quick here at traffic, 517 on the clock, the latest from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation, 521 on the clock. We're joined today, of course, by lawyer, author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, talking about the events that have been unfolding really since the arrival of COVID-19 on American shores, and to be sure, the long-term implications of this, both politically, socially, from a standpoint of, of national health care and economically, will um, will no doubt be felt for years to come. During the last major economic event in the United States, the 2009 market disaster, we often heard a phrase, too big to fail. And this was used to justify trillion-dollar bailouts of big corporations. Eleven years later, it's largely the same response, although for the little guy, there seems to be this notion of let them eat cake. One of the concerns, I think, from the the nationalization of the approach to dealing with this current pandemic and the economics of it all um, is something I'd like to have you on opine on, Bob. And I'll make a, a minor twist on a quote from Ben Franklin, who said, when the people find out they can vote themselves money, that will herald the end of the republic. Might we say when corporate America finds out it can vote itself money that will herald the end of the republic. And I, I asked that question, have we seen this 
huge imbalance of $1,200 checks going to people, which in California does nothing to even pay a third of the rent, let alone help keep your head above water. And then others that are not all too eager to go back to work because they're making actually more on unemployment than uh, what they had made in their full-time jobs. Uh, I got to wonder who thought that was a good idea. It, it just seems that part of the problem here is you've got people way far away, either in Sacramento or in this case in Washington, D.C., that are trying to make big decisions that impact all of us. But the sense of the influence on these decisions are not really being made by all of us. The, the, the lone guy that runs a small store in a mom-and-pop shop in an old downtown of a town in California probably has very little impact on the decision-making process in Washington, D.C. And does that perhaps largely get to the heart of what the real problem here is? It, it does, Craig. And, um, and you're right about those uh, large unemployment insurance checks with a $600 per week bonus. That has had a perverse and quite damaging effect on the little guy, Craig, because the little guy who employ local workers, um, often, if we're thinking about service industry, um, at uh, modest wages, minimum wage, above minimum wage. And but what happens, but that is all these workers are worth, or else they'd be paid more. And so now businesses, small businesses, as they struggle to reopen, and they go and call their workers who they haven't had much contact with for four or five weeks, and they say, come on back, I'm starting to open part-time basis, but we're getting back on our feet. And the worker says, lose my number. I'm making more by not working than I am by working. I am disincentivized to work for you. So government, in an effort to buy quiet, throw out money, lest people start storming the Bastille, in an effort to do that, to throw out money, they have created this distortion in the supply of labor. So how can we get back to work if we can't induce the workers to give up their unemployment checks and go back to work? Now, most Americans would go back to work anyway because, as I said, work provides more than just money, but many will not or at least they'll go back slower, and therefore we have a distortion in the supply of labor, and that means small business cannot reopen because they can't get workers, further slowing the economy, further to put out money into unemployment checks satisfies uh, or creates an increased demand for services, but here we have government which criminalized work except for essential industries, whatever the heck that means. And by by reducing the supply of goods, we all know we couldn't have gotten meat for a while. There was a shortage of supply. What good is it to create artificial demand by putting money in people's pockets if they haven't got the goods to spend it on? They can't get their hair cut. They can't get services. And they can't even buy certain food stuff and other commodities. So how dumb is it to create a demand? We have not had a problem of demand for services. The problem has been supply. And government solves the supply problem by further creating the demand, by giving more money in people's hands 
without the ability to spend it. It was wrongheaded, and it was done because when we have policies in Washington, one size fits all, in an incredibly complex economy, we have these breakdowns. And the economy will have trouble getting back on its feet because by closing up unessential industries, well, essential industries have to buy unessential products. And if the unessential product manufacturer is not allowed to operate because they are unessential, then the person making the essential products can't finish the job. It, the economy is too complex to be run by fiat from Washington or from state houses. And this, this experience has shown how we cannot have politicians messing with this complex engine called the economy. It cannot be done. And that has been one of the great failures of centralized control of the economy. You alluded to something before the break a moment ago, and we won't have a lot of time, Robert, to dive into this, but, but I, I would be amiss if I didn't ask you to comment on this one thing. With the, the heavy-handedness in which the shutdown in a very unbalanced fashion has happened across the country, um, those that are being left in the wake, of course, are small businesses. And the reality is... 52% of everyone who was gainfully or was prior to COVID-19 gainfully employed in the United States works for a small business. So now with so many of these companies that were not able to survive, were not able to obtain loans, didn't get a big $2.5 trillion bailout package from Washington, D.C., and they're being essentially left to go back to the pieces of what's left of their business and close up shop and try to join the other minions on the unemployment lines. Is this going to force the average Joe on Main Street to take a more active role in the political world and begin to perhaps reckon with the idea that centralized planning, be it out of Sacramento or out of Washington, D.C., is an idea that is a failure? Craig, in approximately 437 B.C., that was kind of before our time, Craig. 437 B.C., Pericles, one of the first political commentators, made a comment that is as true today as it was then. Just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics doesn't take an interest in you. In other words, you better pay attention to politics or else you cannot complain if politics screws you over. So, yes, small business people today are once again learning the lesson of Pericles. You better become active and have your voices heard or else you'll be drowned out and you will be, you will be left in the dustbin and you will perish. And that's because government is so powerful. It shouldn't be that way. Uh, best if government didn't have so much power, then it couldn't harm you so much, and then you wouldn't have to spend so much time worrying about it. But it's not the case. Remember Microsoft in the very end of the 20th century? Microsoft had a handful, despite its size, of lobbyists in Washington because it was just making money, making a product. Everyone were happy with the product. It was doing what business does. 
then antitrust started to be discussed, and Microsoft became a target. Microsoft today has thousands of lobbyists doing what it never did even a little bit before government got Microsoft in its crosshands. And now look at Amazon. Amazon is going to be doing the same thing, although Amazon is a bit more skillful now than Microsoft was at the end of the last century. So, yes, regretfully, government is too powerful, and therefore you have to fight force with force. And that means spend money, waste money on lobbyists to make sure you get a seat at the table so that your voice is heard. I wish it wasn't that that way. I pray it stops being that way, but that's the way it is now because of the power in the central government. And as you suggested, perhaps this is the kind of sad awakening, a wake-up call that America needs to get our collective act together and to stop seceding power to Washington, D.C. It isn't that they stole it from us. We've let them have it. Bob Zadek, lawyer, author, syndicated talk show host. His program, by the way, can be caught every Sunday morning here in the San Francisco Bay Area at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And if you check out his website, bobzadek.com, you'll find links to not only um, his most recent book, you'll get information about previous broadcasts, podcasts, all kinds of other great resources. So check it out, bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. The program, Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock on 860 a.m. The Answer, The Bob Zadek Show, informative, challenging, and it certainly is a tune-in habit, so be sure to check it out. Our thanks to Bob Zadek. Right now, we're going to thank our friends at KFAX Traffic Center and get you caught up here on some traffic at 533. And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. As I mentioned at the onset of today's program, an Oregon judge has ruled that Governor Kate Brown's pandemic-related executive orders exceeded her authority. Orders resulted in churches, businesses, and school closings and required that citizens in Oregon remain under home confinement. Now the judge has said, mm, a bridge too far. Let's get an update as we're joined by constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute, Brad Dacus. Brad, tell us exactly what did Judge Matthew Shirtcliffe find in this particular case? Yes, the judge uh, found that the governor had violated uh, the, uh, the law, the statutory law in Cal, excuse me, in the state of Oregon, uh, in that uh, the, the law requires that, um, in essence, after 28 days, that uh, in order for emergency uh, governors to order to, um, for emergency situations to be able, like a pandemic, to be able to be uh, continued to be binding, it, she has to get a three-fifth uh, approval of the state assembly and the state senate. Uh, and that's also pursuant to the uh, language of the state constitution. And she did not. And the language is just, it's very clear-cut, Craig. So we at Pacific Justice Institute, uh, our attorney in our, our, our Oregon office, Ray Hackey, uh, argued the case. And uh, the judge agreed and said there's got to be some limitation on the governor and their ability just to control lives and shut down businesses and churches and everyone. And he looked at the law, and, he, and 
he did the right thing. Obviously, I'm a little biased, but it was just, it's very, very clear cut. Well, uh, before the day was over, after uh, granting that preliminary injunction to halt uh, the governor's executive order, uh, binding order, uh, the, uh, the, the state, the governor's attorneys, uh, appealed it to the state Supreme Court of Oregon, and the chief justice granted emergency stay, which basically means um, we're not going to uh, let that go into effect, that plenary injunction, until the state Supreme Court has a chance to review it. Uh, they're moving fast track. We could have it actually uh, a hearing uh, before the end of the week and a decision by the state Supreme Court before the end of the week. Um, and that's a little concerning because four out of seven of them were, were appointed by this governor. That's where the problem is. It's not a matter of the law. We, we're, it's solid. The law's you know, shut and closed. It's a question of the uh, political um, nature of uh, those sitting on that uh, state Supreme Court. Now, of course, while this particular issue is unique to Oregon in that it's based on Oregon law, um, people are watching this all over the country. And it's been interesting to, to watch the coverage and, and comments about Pacific Justice Institute on even the national news as people from the other 49 states. Again, while the regulations and laws in effect in relationship to the powers their governor may or may not have for each of the respective states will differ, they are certainly watching this with great interest. Oh, they certainly are. Uh, you know, governors are, don't have a uh, get-out-of-jail-free card, and uh, we at Pacific Justice Institute know that. So we're looking at these matters state by state, looking at the states that have the strongest uh, the palatability to, to, uh, to challenge the, these governor uh, orders. Um, Oregon, obviously, is was, was a very solid one to do that. Um, there's other states that we're looking at right now that I can't really talk about. Uh, California's had some language. It's uh, a little grayer. It's not, it doesn't have the, the same enforcement uh, power that the language in Oregon had. The California we're dealing with differently. It's a different strategy, and I can't really get into that. But um, there's no state that we consider uh, to be um, beyond review and above, uh, beyond challenge. And I will say this. Um, every state must sooner rather than later uh, recognize the free exercise rights of churches and people of faith to safely and legally be able to, to gather in some capacity, or they will inevitably find themselves in, in court um, and will lose uh, as violating the First Amendment of the Constitution. Now, of course, the challenge here is to balance the legal part that you just intoned with the safe part. And we were greeted today by an analysis from the Centers for Disease Control on the example that they cite in Arkansas of a local pastor and his wife who had gathered together. He conducted a Bible study. And in the wake of that Bible study, through engaging in their, their contact, um, the tracing and so forth, were able to determine that fully 61 members of that congregation were all influenced, not influenced, but, but, but um, impacted by uh, exposure to the pastor and his wife, who at the time were presenting no symptoms. So I guess the question here is, what's the potential blowback going to be if in states like Oregon, if indeed the Supreme Court upholds the lower court decision and says, you know what, Governor, you either got to go back and get the legislature to agree or we're throwing it all wide open. Is there potential risk in that because of the interest in wanting to gather together and yet still trying to struggle with not fully understanding the risk and implications of this particular viral infection? 
Yes, that is a very uh, major concern for several reasons. Uh, and that's why we at Pacific Justice Institute have, have a very, very detailed uh, checklist for churches who want to reopen, you know, whether in-house service, an outdoor service, and whatever, you know, or whatever hybrid. Uh, and the reasons for several forms. One uh, is for liability. If someone dies and their family member sues that church, that church better be able to defend themselves and show that they did everything that they could do or should do to maintain a safe, a safe place, a safe environment. Uh, and then second uh, is you know potential criminal prosecution if they're violating the governor's order. That something like that happens, there'll be a green light for, for prosecution. Uh, at the very least, for up to six months behind bars for the for the pastor and a thousand dollar fine. Uh, but even worse of all this, the worst is actually the public relations. Um, it could be hurt a lot of churches across the country if just several churches are sloppy, and we have you know multiple people in a community doesn't die because the church was sloppy. There'll be a lot of anger built up by from a lot of people looking to blame someone. That's the last thing we need to do in a crisis like this. Churches need to be thought of as bastions of love, compassion, uh, understanding, and um, that will will be definitely hurt uh, tremendously. So there's, there's major concerns, and that's why we have this very explicit checklist. And that's one reason why we have these pastor calls we've been having every Thursday at 2 p.m. Uh, pastors, church leaders, register on our website, and we give them, with our multiple attorneys, free counsel and advice and strategy on how to move forward safely and legally. And, of course, you, you, you offer this service absolutely free with no obligation whatsoever. And uh, pastors can go to pacificjustice.org uh, to register. You need to do so because this is, of course, a, a, a online meeting. So registration is necessary so you get all the, uh, the details as to how to participate. The next one will be scheduled for this Thursday. That's May 21st um, at 2 p.m. Pacific time. And, you know, you, you, you touch on something very important that while on one hand we want to not forsake the gathering of ourselves to be sure, but the broader testimony before the church is important here too and I I had someone who is decidedly an atheist opine that they felt as if in some of the cases of some of these churches, such as the one that I cite in Arkansas, that there seems to be almost a, a sense of tempting God here. How did he put it? He said, this is sort of the modern day version of snake handling in the church in order to prove that we trust our God and nothing will, will ever befall or hurt us. And, and sort of a, a massive distortion of that passage in scripture in uh, in Matthew. And so um, to have a sense of balance here and make sure that churches are not only certainly exercising and protecting their First Amendment rights, while at the same time making sure that they're protecting the very ministry that they're engaged in and the very communities that they're ministering to becomes critically important. Um, still, um, the the event on this Thursday, um, it's going to be not only topics, but then is there also a Q&A available afterwards, Brad? Uh, yes, there, there is. Uh, all without charge. Our attorneys are going to be there. Uh, for the you know the, for chatting and for, actually for questions that are going to come in, we're going to answer those on the Zoom call, uh, and um, it's very fast paced. We try to make get everyone's questions answered, and if we don't, then we'll we'll address them uh, the next meeting of the next week. But uh, many churches are getting ready to uh, open doors this May 31st. Some in safer zones than others, and uh, they need to know what they're they're looking at and. Um, and uh, the best way to mitigate the, the potential consequences they may be facing. All right. And again, that uh, special webinar, absolutely free, but you do need to register by going to pacificjustice.org. That's pacificjustice.org. And we'll be waiting with bated breath to see what the 
Oregon's Supreme Court has to say in this uh, decision handed down uh, just yesterday by the lower court. Congratulations, Brad Dacus, founder and president with the Pacific Justice Institute. 547. That means it's time for us to get you caught up on some traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. You know, the Freedom of Information Act can be a beautiful thing when it comes to forcing government, sort of as the, 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 the principal target here, though it can work for, for private industry as well um, that impacts the public, and, and getting them to release information. And certainly uh, most recent revelations in relationship to what's going on with Planned Parenthood um, because of a, a request by Freedom of Information Act authority to gain this information, um, is bringing to the forefront more and more news. Much of that, largely, that the revelations we saw that came out 2014, 2015, and in that neck of the woods in relationship to the shenanigans that Planned Parenthood was up to, well, they're not only continuing to this day, but they continue to not be held accountable for any of it. Let's get details from Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. right here on KFAX. And this is, this is troubling information, certainly perhaps not anything, Brian, that we didn't suspect, but have the outright evidence to show that the revelations that came to the surface um, half a dozen years ago or so um, and the activity by Planned Parenthood in relationship to outright violation of law not only continues unabated, but continues with no sense of accountability. Well, that's exactly right, Clay. Excuse me, despite my little coffee. It's exactly right, Craig. What we see, and it's important to note first, the truth about Californians, as well as all Americans, when it comes to their real values on abortion. We're told that California, well, it's a pro-choice state, and it's been driven into our heads, L.A. Times, NBC, PBS, the Quran. This is just how it is. But that's not actually true, because polls show consistently, even for progressives, people, let's put it this way, liberals, I'll use that word, liberals, that 80% last year, when, when Governor Northam admitted that he was fine with the child being aborted throughout the nine months of pregnancy, and should the child be born alive, well, we could just set that kid aside. Again, like a hamburger, keep it warm till you decide what you want to do with it. Well, people were stunned, and the polls then showed what we have known for a long time. Late-term abortion is not approved by Californians or Americans. And that 80%, the polls that were taken last year in 2019 about this, said that 80% of Americans only favored abortion in the first trimester. Now, they've been taught by a dishonest media, well, that's all that Roe does. Well, that's all that Roe does. Roe's very limited. And, of course, there's no discussion of Doe versus Bolton. There's no discussion of the actual practice of abortion. It's all about how Roe is described and framed. And yet, the average American does not believe in unlimited abortion on demand. And once in a while, we will see revelations of what's really going on, and people scratch their head, they're stunned, because there is, for the lack of a better word, a media 
conspiracy. It's an intentional desire to not publicly talk about late-term abortions because then people don't like abortion. So those abortions are simply not discussed. You're not allowed to discuss them. And that's part of the media culture. Don't talk about that. And it's very clear when when Donald Trump debated Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump was very wise. He basically pointed out, and he asked if she was willing to favor any limits on abortion up to the ninth month. He just went right to it. She supported unlimited abortion. That's what choice means. And the average American isn't there. The reason I bring this up is that once again we are seeing, as you know, California pro-life did a Freedom of Information Act request, and the response came back in ink, admission by the state of California, that the state pays for all abortions for any reason. No medically indicated reason is necessary through all nine months. And there is a law in California that says if a child happens to be born, again, imagine these are six, seven, eight months along, eight and a half months along. If a child happens to squeeze out alive on the abortionist table, well, you can just put that kid in the trash can. It's stunning. They don't want this discussed. Something else, though, as you know, David Delighton is, is the, the name we attach, but the, the uh, Committee for Medical Progress, basically CMP videos, had Planned Parenthood admitting this in intimate discussions because they wanted to sell these older baby body parts because they're valuable. So science, science funds for experiments. And in that discussion, again, these are up again because you're probably aware that the federal judge in this case has fined multiple millions against David Delighton and all the members of CMP. They're all being fined millions of dollars to do what CBS News did regularly in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, to do the gotcha admissions and, and document that. That's been a received part of reporting on the facts, but not by our contemporary media. If you do it against the abortion industry, well, you're a criminal. So the CMP videos, and again, uh, I mention this because it's applicable right now. They're going to pay millions of dollars for reviewing this. But even the, the act against partial birth abortion, a federal law was passed, and that is now law. They intentionally skirt that. And the director of medical services for Planned Parenthood explained on video how they skirt it. Because in order to skirt it, if the child's killed before it escapes the birth canal, it can't be a partial birth abortion because the child's already been killed. And so within the abortion industry, they don't do, quote-unquote, don't do partial birth abortion because they use what's called digoxin, which is a powerful poison inserted into the child to kill the child in a late-term abortion to make sure that kid ain't alive. We can't risk this kid being born alive. And so that's what they do, and she admitted that. But now, in the conversation to sell the child's body parts, they don't want those. that digoxin poisons the body parts. And so she explained what they do. She said they check a form. There's a form you fill out, a bureaucratic form. And it asks if you intended 
to kill the child before it was born. If you check that box, now when you do a partial birth abortion, the procedure, it's not considered a partial birth abortion because the child has already been killed before the kid escaped the womb. And so, therefore, since that's your intent to kill the kid before the child comes out, you have protected yourself under the law. Now, let me underscore the deceitfulness of this whole game, because she underscored it. She told David Delighton, because they wanted to buy the body parts and they wanted to make sure they weren't poisoned. All we had to do is check that box, that it was our intent. So as long as that box is checked, that it was our intent, because under criminal law, you're probably aware, intention is vital. If you do something unintentionally, then you can't be convicted of it. So as long as she intentionally lies, I hate to say it, but that's what she's saying on the video. She intentionally lied. No, our goal was to kill the kid before it escaped the womb, so we didn't do it. And then she told Delighton on the video, yeah, but we can't always get digoxin. It's not all that easy to get. So if we can't get a hold of it, We'll simply check it was our intent to do that, and we're being honest, quote-unquote. And the child then, when we get that baby part, it doesn't have any poison, and you're going to want to buy these body parts. It's wonderful. Buy these body parts. So what we see is that the media does not want this discussed. But the deceitfulness of language, as you know, you and I have talked about this so often, that's where our real battle is, the dishonesty of language, what... We used to call lying. There's so much intentional lying and misrepresentation in the media in order to justify this ideology of death. And that's happening, and they don't even want to go into the debate. They don't want to talk about what Planned Parenthood's medical director just described at all, because the average person, when they realize these are late-term babies, the average Joe six-pack, again, polling shows that your next-door neighbor who never goes to church, who doesn't care about this issue, when they realize these are kids that you could hold in your arms, when they, that's inescapable to them, to their common sense. They don't support that, so the media simply goes silent. And this, this conspiracy of silence, really, I, we've had enough. And as we talked about last week, that's the real importance, and I believe the significance, for the unborn sanctuary resolutions in cities in California there. It's coming. Because every city in California has already proclaimed at every fire station in their town. We don't throw babies out. We in our town do not simply throw a preemie in the trash because it's unwanted. We accept life in our town. We believe in life. That's the choice we want to emphasize. And again, as we know with language, choice simply has come to be equated with abortion. What about all the many, many, many alternative avenues for that mother and child? The many, many choices. That's dismissed because of the, the ideology of death that the media repeats. Well, choice means reproductive rights, and reproductive rights means being able to kill a baby. I mean, you can't say it, it's a baby. Being able to terminate that pregnancy. So this is a very real battle, and it's coming to a head in many ways we're seeing this come to a head because people are tired of being lied to by the dominant media. And finally, people are saying, we have had enough. 
So the, the unborn sanctuary resolutions, they're not going to stop abortion, but they're going to say this, we know what's going on. We do not agree with it. And we publicly make that statement. We do not stand with late-term abortions. We won't stand for it. So it's a, it's a significant moment right now we're going through during all of this COVID. And as we know, there's been some misrepresentation regarding COVID, too. And that's a whole other discussion. But we're in a real battle of ideas for our culture now. And I have to admit, and I think there's a lot of listeners, maybe his personality is something we, that we enjoy entirely. But this president has been willing to take it. He's been willing to speak what needs to be spoken to those who have lied. And that's significant. It's significant that we recognize we have been lied to culturally, and we have to be willing to stand up against those lies. Well, we do indeed. And, of course, the, the other challenge here is that we also have to be willing to hold those who violate the law accountable. And, and, and sadly, as we've learned um, since the revelations that came about five, six years ago, that Planned Parenthood in states like California and others, quite frankly, I mean, the, the passage of the uh, Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act in 2003 and was upheld by the Supreme Court, is viable in all 50 states. And yet, sadly... Planned Parenthood has been allowed to skirt the law again and again and again with no accountability whatsoever and continue to enjoy support of our tax dollars. Sad. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. We appreciate the update. More available at CaliforniaProLife.org. That's CaliforniaProLife.org. Brian dives into the news, the story behind the story. Every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. on Life Matters. We invite you to tune in, check it out, be a part of the program, and uh, continue to support California Pro-Life Council online, californiaprolife.org. All right, 607, let's uh, get caught up here. We're a bit late, so find out what's going on traffic-wise from the KFAX Traffic Center.